You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I want to say that I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, You know, in times like these, in this culture of fear you could say that we live in, it's really good. Does this pastor's heart good to see God's people gathered together in his house? Amen? And uh, Lord Lord will bless that, bless us for it, I believe, and I certainly hope that you'll get something from his word this morning. You know, the problem with missing church is that soon you don't miss it anymore. And so I'm grateful you're here, grateful that uh, we can gather together for these few minutes and just to seek the Lord uh, in his word. I, uh, as, as glad as I am to be here, I, not for the reason I am, I guess, pastor not feeling well. I so appreciate your pastor and getting to know him and uh, the blessing he's been to my heart and my life is that any time we've spent time together, I've always just been encouraged and uh, ironing, sharpening iron, and it's a, it's a blessing. What a day we live in today. Pandemic, uh, riots, protests, masks. Uh, just a different world that we live in than we did just a short while ago. We're in a day today that I believe with all my heart, more than ever, God's people, the church, needs to work together uh, towards doing His will and furthering His kingdom. We need to do more now than ever. We need to love one another, lift one another up, encourage one another. The church's greatest strength is a unified focus in glorifying God. The church's greatest weakness is usually ourselves. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes. Let's read a verse here in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, because I'm burdened as a pastor that many people are more interested today, even in our churches, more people are interested in their own kingdom than they are in God's kingdom. Read with me. We're just going to look at one text verse. We'll look at other verses throughout the message, but I want to just look at one verse today to begin with, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. The Bible says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. I want to preach to you this morning for a few minutes on laborers together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have Thank you for each one of these precious folk that are out today, uh, that are gathered here in your house. I pray, Lord, that you would help us gain something from your word. I have nothing to offer of my own strength, my own power, but we speak from a word that has it all. And Lord, may we see you work, not only in our midst today here, but those that are tuning in online. We just uh, uh, remove distractions and help us focus now on what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life or what your specific aspirations are, but if, if you will be a help to your pastor, if you will be a help in your church uh, to do God's work, then this message is for you. If you have a desire to get involved, uh, to help further the gospel, not only in your community but worldwide, and edify each other in the body of Christ then I want to uh, preach this message for you. I want to encourage you on this idea that we see in this verse today, laborers together. 
What a wonderful phrase that is. The original word, the, the Greek word where this term laborers together comes from, it comes from one word, and it's synergos. Uh, That's where we get our word synergy from. Maybe you know what that word means. Maybe you heard that uh, used in a term of business or whatever, the word synergy. I like that idea. What that word really means is that two or more people who work together will produce more than the combined efforts of their individual effort. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago at a Midwestern fair, many spectators were gathered for an old-fashioned horse pull. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but they load down a sled with a certain amount of weight, and they see which horse can pull the most weight. And so they had two horses that were kind of expected to be the winners here. The grand champion horse pulled a sled with 4,500 pounds on it. The runner-up, or the next closest one, the horse pulled a sled with 4,400 pounds on it. Now, the runner-up was very close, and some of the men, I I believe if you combine those two, 44 plus 49, I think we're getting close to $9,000. I was homeschooled, and so you just got to bear with me on that. Homeschooling is the goodest thing that ever happened to me. I don't know about you, but... uh, Separately, they totaled about 9,000 pounds, and a couple of men wondered, what if we hitched them together and see what they could do combined? Now, you would think, with what they had just done, uh, you you would think along with me, it'd be about 9,000 pounds, but they didn't pull 9,000. In fact, working together as a team, they pulled over 12,000 pounds. That's synergy. When two people can do more combined than the sum total of their separate efforts, that synergy. We need to see that in God's church, amen? And so that is what I want to look at this morning for a few minutes. The idea that more can be accomplished if we work together than if we total all of our separate efforts. In mathematical terms, synergy is 2 plus 2 equals (laughs) 5. Told you I was homeschooled, but that synergy... Synergy in a church happens when each person uses their own skills, uh, when every person who has unique abilities and, yes, shortcomings, but does what they can for the cause of Christ. Did you know, dear friend, that there's something that you can do better than anyone else here? God has gifted you in certain ways, and you can get involved and use those gifts for him. So the goal of our church then should be to utilize each person's strong point. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I encourage you today, dear friend, find your niche and get involved in the work of God in your local church. Now let's break down the verse, because I like to just walk through Scripture and kind of break down the phrases and the words. Let's look at the, what the Bible says here. For we are laborers. Laborers indicates that there's a work to be done. We are not vacationers, dear friends. We are laborers in God's kingdom. The sad fact is that when most people get saved, they think they're about to get on a cruise ship, when the truth of the matter is they're getting on a battleship. And life isn't always easy as a Christian. Sometimes there are difficult times. We are laborers. It's not always easy. But nothing worthwhile is easy. We know that. Even a mosquito doesn't get a pat on the back till he goes to work. Amen? We need to work. We're laborers. And then the Bible says, together. Laborers together. That's how we're supposed to labor. We're supposed to labor together. Teamwork. 
makes the dream work. We mobilize our forces. You might be familiar with the Peanuts cartoon. A few years ago, there was a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy walks in and demands from Linus to change the TV channel. And he says, what makes you think you can walk in here and just take over? So she explains. She says, you see these five fingers? Individually, they're not much. But when I curl them together like this, they make a mighty force. The next uh, frame is Linus sighing and walking out of the room and He turns away and he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you get organized like that? (laughs) Together, working for the same goal, trying to work the same purpose, will accomplish much in the work of God. 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together at the same mind in the same judgment. Laborers... We're to work together. We're to work together. And then he says, with God. This is the who that we serve. This is what we're laboring for. He empowers us to have success in our labor. Herman Edwards was a coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. And he uh, talked about teamwork one time. And he says, these players that play on my football team will play for the name that's on the side of their helmet, not for the name that's on the back of their jersey. I fear today, dear friends, that many Christians play for the name on the back of the jersey instead of playing for God. We need to work together with God, the Bible says. Too many times Christians are playing for themselves. The only way that we're going to be successful in laboring together, synergize, synergy, if we're both tuned to God, if we have the same combined purpose. We have, uh, if you take two pianos, we have two pianos in our church. Once in a while, we have to get them tuned. And it's interesting. I was there one time. I don't know anything about music or pianos or things like that, but I have a young man that's a a grandson of one of our members, and he comes and he tunes the pianos. And it's interesting that when he tunes this piano over here, uh, he is, and and then he goes to move this, tune this piano over here. He does not tune this one to this one or tune this one to that one. What he does is he tunes them both to a tuning fork, I think it's called. I'm not sure. But to some kind of standard that he has, he tunes that piano to this standard, and then he goes over and tunes that piano to this standard, and because they are both tuned to the same standard, guess what? They're tuned to each other as well. That's the kind of unity we need to have. With God makes to together in labor possible. We need to be tuned to the same standard. That being said, there's such a thing as negative synergy as well. Two plus two equals three. That would be negative synergy. Uh, That's where you accomplish less together than you would by yourselves. This is when you have anger and jealousy and envy and things like that. A team's collective performance can either be better or worse than the sum total of its members' individual efforts. What kills synergy in a church. What kills this idea of laboring together? Well, first of all, one thing that I'm sure there's many things. We'll look at a few this morning, but distraction is a big one. Distraction kills synergy. Our goal should be a joint effort without distraction. First Corinthians seven thirty-five. the Bible says, and thus I speak for your own profit, that I may cast a snare, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, that you may attend to the Lord without distraction. 
That word for distraction is an interesting word. It means to be overoccupied or to be too busy about anything. Uh, it's the same root word that's used in Luke chapter 10. You know the story in Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha had Jesus over, and uh, <coughs> they were excited about having him, but they were excited for different reasons. Mary was, uh, every time you find Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus, and she's there listening to him. And Martha's out working in the kitchen, and she's bustling around trying to get the perfect meal together and trying to get everything to the table set. All the, and there's nothing I have found. I've been married for 26 years. There's nothing that drives a woman crazier than somebody else doing nothing. Have you ever noticed that? So here's Mary. She's sitting down there at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's getting madder and madder and madder out in the kitchen. And the Bible says that she comes into Jesus, and in verse number 40, uh, and I just, it's not in the Bible specifically, but I'm sure that her hands were on her hips when she said, Martha, being cumbered about, much serving, came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore to help me. Cumbered about. Distracted. Same word. Doing good things. Martha was doing a good thing. She wasn't sinning. She was trying to serve. Distracted. How many times in our Christian life are we busy but distracted? Busy but not busy in the main thing. You know what I see in ministry and in church work? Busyness often prohibits effectiveness. Socrates said, beware of the barrenness, the barrenness of a busy life. We are so busy that we can make the service about the service and not about the master. Here is a great example the Bible gives in the feeding of the 5,000. You know the story, he, the little boy gave his lunch, Jesus blessed it, they start passing it out, and this little sack lunch, uh, five hush puppies, two sardines, and they pass it out and feed thousands of people. It's an amazing miracle. If you keep reading, the Bible says the next thing the disciples did is they went out into the, on the water. They were going to cross the Sea of Galilee. They were out on the boat. A terrible storm came up. Jesus walked on the water. He came up to the boat. He, uh, he calmed the storm. You know that story as well. And the Bible says that they were amazed and wondered. And then it makes an interesting phrase because they considered not the loaves. They were busy. They were in God's will, doing what he said, and never considered the miracle they were a part of. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. Oh, friend, don't be distracted in the work of God. You can be distracted when you mistake activity for productivity, when you mistake efficiency for effectiveness, when you mistake more for better. We live in a constant tension between the urgent and the important. There's a great book called The Tyr Tyranny of the Urgent. Uh, I, I recommend that reading because it kind of transformed my thinking as a father. How many times do we neglect our children? Probably the most important job God's given us for the urgent. Things that won't matter in five years. Don't forsake the important for the urgent. We become slaves to the urgent. How many times have you been too busy to pray? The urgent taking the place of the important. How many times have we only read a few verses of the Bible because we're so, what, busy? I, I don't know about you, but it is the most common excuse I hear when I invite people to church. I know I need to go to church, but I'm just, what, too busy. We do that in the church as well. In light of eternity, the prominence of our urgency fades. 
in light of eternity. Today, people have 500 friends on Facebook and fewer relationships than they've ever had. We know the intimate details of Hollywood stars, but not the names of our next-door neighbors. We live in a time of information explosion. 100 billion, billion with a B, emails are sent every day. That's over 10 times the population of the whole world. Each day, 5,000 new books are published. 8.6 trillion texts were sent in 2017. No wonder we're overwhelmed. No wonder we're busy. We're activity-driven. We schedule our lives so full, it squeezes out any time uh, for God's work. Have you ever considered, I, I find this so amazing, Jesus was never in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that reading Scripture? He's never in a hurry. Hey, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. Hurry! He waits two days before he ever even takes off. We live, we live for seven, some, sometimes if we're fortunate, we live for seven busy decades and feel we failed in doing all we need for God. Jesus, after only three years in ministry, you know what Jesus said? John 17, 4, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. Now, how can that be? Think about it. How can Jesus finish everything he is to do on earth in a measly three years? Well, the key is found in the phrase, you, give, you gave us me to do. I've done the work you gave me to do. Jesus did not meet every human need that he encountered. Did you know that when Jesus died, there were still people that were sick? They were still sick. There were lame people. They were still lame. There were blind people. They were still blind. And there were dead people that were still dead. He didn't do everything that people wanted, but he did everything that God wanted because he knew the difference between what was urgent, what was in front of him, and what was really important. Listen, friend, don't be distracted by the things of life. Focus on what God wants from you. He completed a mission his father gave him. Can I encourage you today to be about the Father's business, not about your own business? Oh, that'll help us. What I'm telling you today is distraction can kill synergy, laboring together. Distraction. By the way, the devil has no need to deceive you if he can just distract you. And boy, we are distracted today, aren't we? And then secondly, not only distraction, but conflict. Conflict kills this idea of laboring together. Oh, don't we live in a time of conflict. People going different directions. People working against each other. <coughs> I, one, of the, one of my passions is riding a motorcycle. I like motorcycles. And uh, about 15 years ago, I bought my first motorcycle. I was so excited, I had it on the back of a pickup, and I took it home, and nobody was home, so nobody was there to help me. And I backed the pickup up to close to my house, and I was going to unload my motorcycle. Well, I was sitting up there. If you ever see, I had the, I had the ramp there, and then the bike got kind of caught in the middle. There's a name for that. I don't know what it is, but there it was kind of stuck. And I'm pushing and struggling and trying to get it past that. And about that time, my neighbor stepped outside of his house. He saw what was going on. He said, hey, need some help? Yes, I do. And so he jumps up on the back of the pickup, and we start working. He's on the back, I'm on the front. We struggle, we push, we shove, we sweat. And finally, he stops and he says, hey, uh, are we loading this thing or taking this thing off? 
You know, when we started going the same direction, it worked like a charm. The key to resolving and avoiding conflict is to have the same purpose, laboring together with God. Conflict will kill synergy. And then there's envy. Galatians 5.26, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Envy will kill synergy. Envy will kill this idea of laboring together. This is a great example. Uh, you know the verse well, probably Matthew 5.41, the extra mile principle. The Bible tells us, and whosoever, Jesus is talking, uh, he's, this is the, in the Beatitudes, it's the attitudes we need to have, the Beatitudes. And so he says, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Now, we read that today, and it doesn't really register. We don't really think about it. It's not that big of a deal. But to them, this was earth-shattering when they heard Jesus say this. You see, the Roman government dominated at that time, and a Roman soldier or a Roman, anybody in charge, could at any time grab a Jew, no matter what he was doing, no matter how busy he was, no matter how important he was, and order them to carry his burden for a mile. It didn't matter what he was Uh, in the midst of doing. It didn't matter if he was taking him away from something extremely important. He could point to somebody, carry this burden for a mile. Every step that this Jew now takes is a reminder that he's not a free man. Every step he takes is a reminder that he is oppressed. Uh, He is forced to do something he does not want to do. And so this Roman uh, citizen or soldier is forcing him to do what he does not do. Uh, And at the end of the mile, he can throw down that pack throw down that burden and said, there, I don't have to do anything else for you. I'm going back to the house. And then with that thought in mind, Jesus said, go a second mile. This would have been, this would have been crazy talk that they heard. We seem to have the idea, don't miss this now, we seem to have the idea as a Christian that if we abide by the basic standards that we have set for ourselves, we'll be all right. If you go to church, you live a good life, you obey the rules, uh, you live separated lives, you read your Bible, you pray, you treat your family members kind, you don't kick cats, or you can kick cats, that's actually godly, but you, you do all those good things, you do everything you're supposed to do, and you will be a super Christian. There's a devastating verse found in Luke 17.10. This is one of those verses, uh, uh, President uh, Thomas Jefferson, if you ever read about his Bible. Thomas Jefferson took uh, his Bible, they actually have what they call a Jefferson Bible, and he blotted out with, an ink, uh, with a marker what he thought he didn't like. He didn't believe in miracles and such things, and so he would just blot things out. If I could blot something out in the Bible, this would be it. Now, I can't, don't get me wrong. I'm not thinking I should do it. This is a devastating verse. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Oh, you're even, you're just not profitable. You're not really, any, you're not a shining star for God. You've just done what you're supposed to do. You've just fulfilled your obligations. And you're not profitable. 
In other words, you could say that we are unprofitable servants if we only do what we're supposed to do. That is the first mile. That's what we're supposed to do. We're, just, we're supposed to go that one mile. And first mile Christianity, which our churches are chock full of, is doing just what we are supposed to do. And I'll tell you today, to fulfill your all, to fulfill all of your responsibility is to be one small step above failure. You're not profitable. Go back to that Jewish man. In the first mile, he has no choice. He is forced to do it. In fact, I read in one commentary that a mile is approximately a thousand paces. It'd be more for me, less for Brother Heath, you know, because of the... And, and so, uh, but about a thousand paces. And so he's walking. And I can picture 990, 991, 997, 998, 99. I'm done. Can't make me do any more. You see, in that first mile... He's doing what he is supposed to do. He may grind his teeth. He may curse under his breath. He might hate it, what he is doing, but there's nothing he can do. Then at the end of the first mile, now get this, at the end of that mile, now it's up to him. He is no longer being forced to do it. It's now his choice. Now his shoulders can lift. Now he has decided that he's going a second mile because he has decided to do it. He's not required or compelled by the law. Every step he now takes is because he's chosen to take that step. Do you see, along with me, friends, the freedom in the second mile? Second mile Christianity. What a truth that we see from this principle. This is the way to be, to be released from bondage to be released from our responsibility, our duty, uh, not to try to get rid of those things, but to go beyond those things, to do more than we're compelled to do. That's where freedom comes in. That is when you choose to do what you will do. No need to explain this. I think we'd all agree. The world is filled with crazy, weird people. Wouldn't you agree along with me? How many of you have crazy, weird people in your own family. How many of you are sitting by one right now? Amen. All right, got hands all over there. This is first-mile Christianity is where trouble comes. This is where envy sets in, looking around, comparing, wondering if I'm doing more than someone else. This, is, this, this kills the idea of laboring together. We're checking up on one another. I did that last time. I brought more food than she did. Or whatever we have, whatever the comparing that we do amongst themselves, ourselves. Can I tell you today, friend, serving the Lord is infinitely better in the second mile. There's none of the bitterness of duty doing what we have to do. You see, in the first mile, you're looking around, you're watching others. In the first mile, it's a big deal if you're doing more than someone else. You often resent what you have to do, especially if somebody else doesn't have to do it. In the second mile, you're doing it because you choose to. You're doing it because you want to. You're doing it because you have decided to step outside your own desires and serve someone else. You know what you should do this morning? Become a second-mile Christian. Go the extra mile. How faithful 
are you in that second mile? Can you imagine how your home would be transformed if somehow we could wave a magic wand and everyone in your home would become a second mile person? Serving one another, esteeming each other better than themselves. I have eight children. That doesn't happen in my house. We child-proofed our home when we had a few kids come along and more still came. I don't know what happened. We have eight children. We have four teenagers at our house. There's a story that St. Peter was walking down in the early church and he was walking, came across a lame man and he, and he healed the lame man. He came across another man who was blind and he healed him of his blindness. He came across a third man and the man's sitting down on a curb and he's weeping and the, Peter asks him, what's your problem, sir? He says, I have teenagers at home. And all Peter could do is sit down and cry with him. You know what it's like. <laughs> Can you imagine how your home would change if everyone was a second mile Christian? Can you imagine, kids, try this out. Next time your mom tells you to wash dishes, come up to her, say, Mom, I've finished the dishes, I've also mopped the kitchen, and I've cleaned the bathroom. Is there anything else you would like for me to do? And I hope, I hope you know first aid, because you're going to need it, amen? We need a second mile husbands. We need second mile wives. We need second mile children. If you make the choice to go the extra mile, you are leaving the arena of duty and entering the arena of devotion, and it'll make a big difference in your life, I promise you. Your Christianity will be transformed. By the way, can I remind you what God did? He went the extra mile for you, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. That second mile right there. Christ died for us. The least we can do in appreciation for what God did for us is to live in the second mile. By the way, there's never any traffic jams in the second mile. Lots of them in the first, but you'll be, you'll be uh, almost by yourself up there in the second mile. So the first part of effectively laboring together, synergy. The second we I want to look at is unity. Now we talk about unity, but real unity is not agreeing with every... Use Brother Heath as an example. Real unity is not me and Brother Heath sitting down and we just start hashing out until we agree on everything. Probably take a while, wouldn't it, Brother? (laughs) That's not what real unity is. Real unity is like that piano who is tuned to a standard. Real unity is me being so close and walking with Christ and you being so close and walking with Christ that we're automatically tuned to each other. That is real Christian unity. Uh, But yet, we are an independent Baptist church. Our only authority is Christ and his word. But we all like to go our own ways sometimes. He would have us to be a unified force for him. In John chapter 10, verse 16, interesting verse here, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And this is key, because we're all different. We're not the same. Now, does this term, (laughs) other sheep, does that conjure up any visuals in your mind? I'm normal. (laughs) They're an other sheep that I'm sitting with today, or there are other sheep that I'm thinking about. Well, now, specifically here, 
I believe Jesus is referring to the Gentiles here. How in the wide world do you enter what they term Gentile dogs in the midst and have unity? He said it, one shepherd, one fold, one shepherd. Jesus creates unity. We have unity with one another when we are in tune with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, friends, if there are problems in the church, if there's a church split, it's not just simply because people are disagreeing with one another. It's because people aren't tuned in to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the core of the problem. We experience unity when we are in tune with him. Jesus Christ, on the behalf of his church, has created a unity. John 17, 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those thou hast given me, that they may be as one as we are. Our job is to nurture that unity. Our job is to maintain it, but it is a creation of God. When we overlook that truth, when we forget that unity comes from God and our primary goal isn't just to get along with one another, but it's to be tuned into the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is we might get some so-called unity, but it won't be God's unity. Because you see, friend, if we only go after unity for unity's sake, this is going to bring compromise. And compromise isn't right. If unity, then, is the ultimate goal, should I compromise my conviction just to get along? No, not at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. A unity based, and we see it all over, by the way, non-denominational church, your town, USA, we see it all around. Unity based on just getting along. And that is a shallow unity. That is a fragile, ungodly unity. Real compromise is always at the expense of something that we believe in. We hear today that doctrine divides. Amen. I agree with that. The Bible says in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said this, Think ye, uh, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. <laughs> well, that's a verse that's not preached much in uh, our television evangelist churches. He was totally uncompromising with the people of his time. It was either his way or not at all. By today's standards, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I'm just saying it as it is. By today's standards, Jesus would have been a narrow-minded bigot. When he said this, I am the way, I am the truth, no man comes to the Father but through me. I saw a preacher, a preacher not long ago, sitting on national television, and he would not condemn Muslims, he would not condemn Atheists. He said, oh, I think atheists might go to heaven. I can't, I can't make that decision for them. And of course, we're not to judge them to hell. God does that, but we can certainly uh, talk about the Bible, can't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If your trust is in anything but Jesus Christ today, friend, you're not going to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, he says. There is only one way to heaven. Thank God it is a way that we can all take. But narrow is that way. Not many people do. Think about the audacity of Jesus' statement. It was either his way or no way. His doctrine was divisive. He was uncompromising, and he was crucified for it. Doctrine does divide. It is unpopular. Should I then, should I then 
ditch my doctrine so that we can have unity. Let's see what the scripture says in Acts 2.42. kind of puts this in perspective when it says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, I love fellowship. You know what fellowship is in today's Baptist circles? It's eating. Amen? That's what we do at fellowships. You ever been invited to a fellowship where they don't have food? Why? We go to eat. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We eat. Amen? That's what Baptists do. But before fellowship was doctrine. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine comes first, then fellowship. The Bible says in James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. We need to be tuned into Christ. We just have to. If we're going to labor together and we're going to be effective, we have to be tuned in to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm tuned into him. You're tuned into him. Guess what happens together? We labor together. Synergos, synergy. We get more done as a group than we could possibly do working by ourselves. What a concept. If Eastside Baptist Church will endeavor to teach and preach the truth, pure and undefiled. You must hold the word of God as your supreme guide. Make glorifying God your primary goal. Then unity will be promoted. You see, unity has to be something that God does within our hearts as individuals. Very quickly, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to look at just a couple of things. The four requirements we have for unity. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse number 1. The Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity. What unity? Of the Spirit. Remember what he said? Unity is not made by us. It's of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Very quickly, what do we need to have unity? We need four things here. The Bible tells us, verse 2, we need humility, or we could say lowliness. We need humility. The quality of humility is strange because once, once you think, <laughs> once you think that you have found it, you've just lost it. Heard about a preacher. His church was so pleased. He was such a humble preacher. And so they gave him a, a button, a pin. It said, world's most humble pastor. They were proud. Of, I, if you can say that. They were just pleased that he was such a humble man. The next week, they took it away from him because he wore it. You understand? When we recognize our own humility, we're no longer humble, right? Humility is that way. And so the only way that you truly know you have a servant's heart is how you act when you get treated like one. It's easy to say the words, I have a servant's heart, until someone treats you like a servant. (laughs) And we kind of flare up. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. And then meekness, verse 2 also, meekness. When you think of meek, often we think of wishy-washy, spineless, somebody without a backbone, somebody who's afraid to stand up for himself, uh, someone who lets others push him around. Not at all. Meekness, Bible meekness is power under control. I learned to drive when I was about five years old. 
some of you know my testimony, I was raised Amish. And so I went driving a car, driving a horse. We had a Belgium horse, and I, I think I was five or six the first time I actually myself went to the neighbors to get, we didn't have telephones and those type of things, so we had to send messages by mouth, and I actually drove the buggy, a big, giant, strong horse being controlled by a little boy. That's meekness. That's all it is, meekness. He had the power to destroy me, but he was controlled, kept that power under control. Do you have meekness? Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak. We could go into the fact of the disciples arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Always amazes me. And then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Long-suffering. This is uh, not being defensive, slow in avenging wrongs. It's the ability, do you have this ability? The ability to be mistreated without fighting back. It's tough. Baptists have the reputation of sometimes defending ourselves more than we defend the faith. The true test of Christianity is how you treat others who mistreat you. Long-suffering. Matthew 5, 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Hey, friend, that's tough. That's hard there. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but that's hard. But that's required. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. And then, uh, again in verse 2, love. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, love beareth all things. Listen, imagine the unity in this church if we all had forbearance in love. Oh, what God could do. Imagine the unity in the church if we all protected each other's reputations and integrity. Believe all things doesn't mean to be that love is gullible, but love gives the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't promote the gossip chain. We have enough working on our own problems anyway. Amen? Work on the problems of others. Hopeth all things. The optimism of love. Don't look for the worst in people. Look for the best. Endureth all things. Means that love will stand uh, strong in a trial or in a test. These four qualities, they must be there for the unity of the Spirit to reign in the body of Christ. We're talking here about continuing to labor together regardless of circumstances. When the going gets tough, we labor together. When we have a pandemic, we labor together. When we have an uncertain future, we labor together. What can God do with a group of people who will labor together? read a story about Tonto and the Lone Ranger. They were riding down a, through a canyon together. Tonto, as you know, was his Indian sidekick, or American Indian sidekick, Native American, whatever the proper terminology is, it was his sidekick. And all of a sudden, both sides were filled with Indian warriors on horses, dressed for battle. And uh, so they're looking around. They're completely trapped. And the Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and asked, what are we going to do? Tonto says, what do you mean we, white man? Isn't that how Christians are sometimes? We're together until trouble comes. We're together until a trial hits. We're together until we get offended. 
We're together until somebody hurts us, and we could go on and on and on. I'm talking about laboring together for the cause of Christ, putting myself aside, not worrying about my feelings or what happens to me, just focusing totally on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, if we have a group of people who will all do that, there is no end to what God can do through us. Laborers together. Snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things. But hang around here in the winter and look at what they can do when they stick together. Amen? You can see God do great things. You have seen God do great things through your church. You can continue to see God do great things through your church. I close with this warning. Satan hates a church that labors together. Satan will all out attack Christians who labor together. The more you do for God, the more Satan will attack your efforts. You will not ever move forward for God without opposition. Opposition does not necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Not always. Satan will want to get in the way of that. Often it's evidence that you're doing something right. If you allow yourself to do only those things approved by everyone, you will not accomplish anything in your life. Seek to please an audience of one. Oh, we have become so Twitter-pated today and Facebook-happy and want to put the things on and see how many likes we get, how many followers we get. We really ought to be concerned with just one like, that one. Are we pleasing him? Keep on doing what is right. Laborers together for the cause of Christ. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.